You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Rianne Eisler is the author of The Chalice and the Blade, Our History, Our Future, and The Real Wealth of Nations, Creating a Caring Economics. She'll be appearing at 7 p.m. at the Peace United Church on 900 High Street in Santa Cruz to speak on the topic toward a caring economy. Thank you for joining me, Rianne. It's a pleasure to be with you. Let's ratchet back to about 30 years ago when you were 30 years ahead of your time, and discovering the ideas in The Chalice and the Blade. Tell us about the dominator social setup. Well, what I began to see is that if we look at human society, human cultural evolution, using the old lenses, you know, of right-left, religious, secular, eastern, western, northern, southern, capitalist, socialist, and so on, we can't see the whole picture. And it became clear to me that we were missing some very, very important information, which we today know from neuroscience is the enormous impact on nothing less than the development of the human brain, of how a society structures our primary human relations, which, of course, are the relations between the female and male half of humanity and between them and their daughters and sons. So the patterns that I began to see by looking at a much larger database, because the conventional categories simply look at these as just women's issues or just children's issues at best, right? Uh, I began to see patterns, configurations. There were no names for them, so I called one the dominator or domination system, and the other one the partnership or mutual respect system. And that really became the basis uh, for my cultural transformation theory and for the first book, drawing from this research for a popular audience, which was the chalice and the blade, which is now in, well, it's going into the, its 26th foreign edition. Uh, it's in all the European languages and in Chinese and Japanese and Korean. It's, it's, it's coming out in, in Turkish uh, this year. So it's a book that really continues to really change how people look at themselves and our world. Well, this is based on not just the present day, but your look into the past. And you discovered that ancient history was the inception point for your theory, wasn't it? Well, it was really a piece that uh, came in that started to make a huge, huge difference because I was able to, in The Chalice and the Blade, to really tell a new story, not only of where we are, but where we came from. And yes, at the same time, uh, our possibilities for the future. And what I saw is something 
that every week there is something new on, which is that that old story that we've been told about our cultural origins, you know, the caveman, right? Mm -hmm. You know, in one hand, that cartoon, he's got a club, and with the other hand, he's dragging a woman by the hair. It's totally a figment of the domination imagination. Uh, there is nothing, absolutely nothing, in Stone Age art, even remotely suggesting this kind of social organization. Quite the contrary, rather than focusing on our capacity to take life, you know, the blade in the title, mm -hmm. uh, that art really focuses primarily on the chalice, the power not to dominate, to destroy, to take life, but the power to give, nurture, and illuminate life. So we have the so-called goddess figurines, <clears throat> these uh, small uh, figures carved out of stone that these uh, archaeologists of the 19th century called Venus figures. And, in, and, and uh, some archaeologists even today insist are just dolls, ignoring, for example, the Venus of Losal, which is not portable. You know, it's a carving of a nude female figure uh, in the entrance of a cave sanctuary. Mm -hmm. I mean, it can't be a doll. And when I said every day something new is coming out, it's so fascinating. And, uh, and a scholar just a few months ago studied the hands, you know, you know, in so many of these caves, there are the images, imprints of hands, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's one well, of the... He, he found out, well, he was intrigued by some findings that the female hand and the male hand have a different construction, according to scholars. And so when he looked at those, guess what? He found that most of those hands are female hands. So women were there, okay? Mm -hmm. And possibly women were some of the artists, who actually painted and sculpted it. But of course, in the popular imagination, you still have that caveman cartoon, right? Hopefully not for much longer. <laughs> <laughs> let's hope so. And of course, that's part of my work, but it's also part of your work because we have to really get the evidence. We're talking here about empirical evidence. Uh, for example, I was just asked to do a review of a new book uh, about foraging societies mm -hmm. because, you know, the social biological and evolutionary psychology model for cultural evolution is, again, the same old domination, you know, caveman cartoon guy. The battle and the winner of the battle takes control of the top of the hierarchy, and it's a male-dominated hierarchy. Absolutely. Well, what we're finding out, because they base a lot on this, on, again, their imagination mm -hmm. of what our early ancestors millions of years ago really were like in their social organization. So a lot of work has been done now on studying contemporary foraging societies, which are the closest we have mm -hmm. to what these might have looked like. And they're peaceful, by and large, not all of them. But that's part of my cultural transformation theory, that really that tension 
between what I call a domination system and a partnership system goes way back into our prehistory and that different ways of adapting at that time to different environments uh, produce different ways of organizing. And there is more and more evidence today showing a correlation. And I've done a lot of this work. Uh, we did a statistical study at the Center for Partnership Studies called Women, Men, and the Global Quality of Life, showing that the status of women is one of the best predictors of general quality of life as well as democracy and peace. One of the things I think that interests me so much about your work is the way that your uh, is your theory of uh, cultural transformation. So I, I'd like you to talk about how cultural transformation has led originally to a regression, and now we've done some progressions. And I loved your description of the Age of Enlightenment is that it hasn't been uh, completely applied correctly. And I thought that was such a great <laughs> a great take on it. Well, it's, it's a fascinating story. And you're right, that is the story told primarily in The Chalice and the Blade, although I then in the second book that I wrote out of this research, Sacred Pleasure, uh, I applied it to the social construction of sexuality and spirituality as well. Mm -hmm. But what we are really finding is that if we look back into our prehistory, which of course covers about 99% of our evolution, cultural evolution, of our species, right? Because the last um, 10 to 5,000 years are just a little blip, really, uh, in our cultural evolution. What we find uh, is that, for one thing, in the archaeological evidence, uh, there is no evidence of warfare uh, until a very isolated case about 10,000, 12,000 years ago, and then you jump to about 5,000 years ago. And that happens to coincide with what I have uh, really uh, observed, which is evidence of a massive cultural shift. Uh, let's start with what I said earlier, that in different environments way, way back, some societies, foraging societies, oriented more to the partnership side, mostly if they were in areas where resources were more abundant. Sure, where you don't have a competition for resources, you don't have competition. Well, uh, and we see that, as a matter of fact, in uh, our, one, of, one of our two closest primate relatives, the bonobos. Mm -hmm. Uh, which are much more peaceful than the chimpanzees. And they are the two species with whom we share almost 99% of our DNA. And uh, they are primarily, in the bonobos, in forested mm -hmm. rather than arid areas. But if we now jump forward just to about 5,000 years ago, uh, what we begin to see in the archaeological record is that even in the more fertile areas of the globe, 
where, if you will, the earth was a good mother to us. We see huge changes. We see the disappearance of the uh, earlier, almost totally ubiquitous uh, female figures. We see signs of warfare. We also see so-called chieftain graves, where these large males uh, are buried uh, in what we would call suti burials with sacrificed women, children, and horses, because they brought the horse. What we see are really uh, huge changes. And there are some studies now showing that there were huge changes in DNA. Mm -hmm. And this seems to indicate that during a period of uh, extreme climate uh, change, of aridification in the more marginal areas where rather than farming, uh, the shift was from foraging not to farming, but from foraging to herding. Mm-hmm. because the land couldn't sustain farming, that these people began to uh, incursion after incursion to really take over the more fertile areas. And that is the first part of cultural transformation theory, a shift in direction from not ideal, but from a more peaceful, more gender-balanced, uh, less... Uh, uh, stratified, in other words, these hierarchies of domination mm-hmm. that we see in, in, in domination systems are not there uh, to what we are so used to thinking of is inevitable, a domination system of the rigid ranking of man over woman, man over man, race over race, etc. And yes, uh, war at that point really becomes part of the culture. Now, I'd like you to talk about your culture of caring economics. And one of the things I think that interested me was the way you dispense with the need for all these uh, dialectics of left and right and socialist and capitalist. I, I think that the, that your willingness to set these aside and look at things from a new perspective is really an essential part of what you're trying to bring across. Well, let me backtrack for a moment Mm -hmm. and complete cultural transformation theory, if I may. Sure. Uh, Because what we're seeing today, and this is the second and perhaps the most important part of cultural transformation theory, is that uh, the progressive social movements... Uh, are not new, are not radical, that really they're rooted in this haunting drama of our original cultural evolution, and that what we've been working for uh, more and more over the last 300 years is to uh, effectuate another shift, this time from domination to partnership. And there are many signs of this. The fact that we're having this interview Mm -hmm. is Uh, We couldn't, I mean, in the European Middle Ages, which looked a lot like the Taliban, right? Mm -hmm. With the Inquisition, the Crusades, the witch burnings, women had no rights, children had no rights. uh, You had no right to question anything to today. It's quite a difference, isn't it? 
but we have to really work to complete that shift. And that takes me back uh, to where I started about the fact that most of the efforts uh, to dismantle the domination pyramid have focused on what's conventionally considered politics, economics, etc. right? Mm -hmm. And they've paid far too little attention on the base, on the base on which the whole pyramid rests, which are the foundational parent-child and gender relations, the first relations that children observe or experience, which actually are then uh, really part of how the brain structure develops. The caring relationships between parents and children, between uh, pairs of, of men and women that structure our brains as we grow up and cause us bring about one outlook or another. Well, that's it, because in domination systems, as I've brought out again and again in my work, whatever caring there is, it is tinged and equated with coercion, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And it's With also, domination. It's also, uh, in your work too, uh, you point out that it's in the domination systems, it's devalued. That. Well, that takes us directly to my latest book, The Real Wealth of Nations. Mm -hmm. Caring, uh, I chose the subtitle and the theme for that book very carefully because I think that a lot of people, when they hear caring and economy together, they do a double take, don't they? But think about it. Isn't that a terrible comment on how uh, used we are, indeed how brainwashed we've been, to think it's fine to have uncaring values drive economics. And the reason for this is to a very, very large extent what I call a, a hidden system of gendered values. And we've got to make it visible because, yes, caring, caregiving, just like nonviolence, they're in domination systems not considered appropriate for those who are in control, namely males, right? Mm -hmm. And so no wonder we've got what we've got, uh, which is a mess. Well, one of the things you say, too, I thought that made a lot of sense, is that in our recent history, there's been progress, but it's not straight-line progress. It's a spiral, and there's, there's progressions, and there's regressions. We'll go two steps forward, one step back, and I think that we're seeing that now, that that tension between the two kind of systems, and that's one of the things you talk about in, in your books. Absolutely, and I think that it's very important to understand that, A, the tension between these two underlying ways for structuring relations, be it in the family, uh, be it in the state or tribe, be it nationally or internationally, go way, way back. But uh, that the main issue is for us to really leave behind these old fragmenting categories of right-left, religious, secular, Eastern, Western, because if you really think about it, the struggle for our future is not between them. It is within each one of these systems, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Between partnership and domination. And in fact, a colleague of mine has called the old categories weapons of mass distraction 
and they are. They distract us. They fragment our consciousness and deflect attention, as I said, from connecting the dots. Well, one of the things, too, I think that is interesting about your work is that you, you bring out that it's not just the relationships between people we have to think about. We have to think about our relationship to the world and every other part of the place where we live. It's not just about how we get along with one another. We have to think about how we get along with the world, which the two, as you point out too, that the two basic economic theories that have driven us, socialism and capitalism, both assume uh, they were both conceived before there's any kind of environmental uh, awareness of the limitations of our environment. So by definition, neither one of those kind of economic theories can account for the fact that the earth is limited, and we better figure that out pretty darn fast before we run out of it. That's such an important point. If you really think, as I write in The Real Wealth of Nations, uh, both uh, capitalism and socialism are, they came out of industrial times early industrial times, and we are now in the post-industrial era. So they would be antiquated even on that account, you know. But they also came out of times that oriented more closely than we do today to the domination side of the continuum. It's always a matter of degree. So for both Smith and for Marx, you know, the, quote, fathers mm -hmm. of capitalism and socialism, uh, the earth was there to be exploited. Nature was there to be exploited, period. They just both saw unlimited, quote, growth. Right. Uh, not only that, uh, for them, the work of not just caring for nature, but the work of caring for people, starting in early childhood, for them, because that work was primarily, of course, at that time, only not just primarily, but exclusively assigned to women, right? Mm -hmm. For them, that wasn't even productive work. They called it reproductive work, and they weren't interested in that. They were only interested in what they called productive work, and for them, that took place only in the market. So s they both focused on the market, you know, Smith to extol it, and Marx to excoriate it. But as I point out in my work, there's much more to economics than markets. And here we come straight back to this essential point that we need to make visible the economic value, not only the human and environmental value, of caring for nature and caring for people. And that's one of the themes of my work, of the Real Wealth of Nations, of the Caring Economy Campaign, of the Center for Partnership Studies, because I believe that you have to, given that our policymakers are primarily now interested in finance rather than people, we have to provide the evidence for them that even from that standpoint, especially as we move into the post-industrial knowledge service economy, especially with our environmental issues, it is essential that we really give them the evidence, which is what we're doing, of the economic value 
of investing in caring for nature and investing in caring for people starting in early childhood. Because think about it, economists never tire of telling us that the most important capital for our knowledge service era is what they like to call high-quality human capital. You know, these flexible, creative people who can solve problems. Well, we know from neuroscience that whether or not that kind of, quote, human capital is developed largely hinges on the quality of care and education children receive starting early on. So our policies, especially in the United States, are, it, are so completely insane, if only from a simply financial perspective. That's one of the things I thought that was really most interesting was your vision of the importance of human capital. I mean, this is, uh, I think, something that you think about sometimes in terms of human resources, but we always think of the adult version of it. But what's really most important and what you bring out is the importance of the human resources. Uh, children before five and the way they're brought up is, is a actually, at that point, that's when you're creating the, quote, human capital that will become the engines of the next economy. And very much too slowly, much too slowly, the awareness of this is beginning to surface. Uh, we, for example, um, our Caring Economy Campaign of the Center for Partnership Studies, we held a congressional briefing last year uh, in Washington, D.C., about the economic value of the work of caring and caregiving in households, as well as the economic value of high-quality early childhood education. And there are people, uh, I mean, the, the, the data is there. Uh, one of our speakers was Steve Barnett, who works with us on the development of what we call social wealth economic indicators that measure the most important thing for our future. What are the drivers in a society that promote the realization of every person's full development of their capacities? That's the big question, isn't it? And if you look at GDP, there is absolutely nothing in there to tell us about it. You do a great job of uh, demolishing the irrelevance of GDP. <laughs> I thought that you point out that it often emphasizes, it, it ignores the positive and emphasizes the negative. And I thought you, the best analogy was the grove of trees that goes uncut. Well, yes. I mean, if you look at GDP, the only, um, the only time that you see anything about the values of trees, of these ancient you know, especially, I mean, old, old stands of trees is when they're chopped down. But the fact that we need trees for nothing less than breathing, right, is nowhere to be found. Now, again, the good news is that more and more people, including some economists, are now saying, wait a minute, we need other measures. And there is beginning to be much more of a movement to take into account the economic value of our natural resource base. Uh, but again, it's limited. They don't pay much attention to overpopulation, which again takes us to another gender issue, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, this hidden 
system of gendered valuations of how a society structures the roles and relations of the two halves of humanity, it, it affects everything. It affects what kind of family we have, right, whether it's authoritarian or democratic, which has a huge impact on children's brain development. It affects economics, as we've been talking about. Uh, it affects what we value or don't value, and it affects our social and policy priorities. So our population, I, I was in a film called Mother, Caring for Seven Billion, which used a lot of my work, you know, as its conceptual framework. Uh, we know that you, you can talk about their, the, the problem being only resource misdistribution, and that is a problem. But that's absolutely only a part of the story and an increasingly small part. The real issue is carrying capacities. Look at the water wars that we're beginning to see in Africa. Water is the oil of the future. That's right. I think that's, uh, that's something I've long worried about, that yeah. the shortage of water and the difference between water and oil is we can live without oil. We cannot. We live cannot without live oil. without water. And that's why you're beginning to see water wars uh, in, in, in the arid. I mean, it, it's all, you know, one of my first jobs out of school uh, you know, I got my degree in sociology and anthropology, was working for the Systems Development Corporation, which was an offshoot of the RAND Corporation. And that was at a time when systems analysis was just, you know, a brand new word, right? Mm -hmm. But it made a huge impact on me because I began to see the importance of looking at the whole picture and connecting the dots. It's oh. all interconnected, but it also made it very, very clear that if we are to really move forward, we cannot ignore these, the social construction of these foundational relations. And what's so fascinating is that the people pushing us back, you know, whether it was Hitler in Nazi Germany or Stalin in the former Soviet Union or Khomeini in Iran uh, Idi Amin in Uganda, you know, all these terribly repressive, regressive regimes, for them, quote, traditional gender roles, you know, the traditional roles for women, a, quote, traditional family, where children see, you know, this model of ranking one, they learn to equate difference with either dominating or being dominated, with either being served, you know, men are supposed to be served and women are to serve them. And that's hardly a model for any kind of equality, is it? No, and you point out that in the countries and the societies in this world where there is more of a partnership model, those people are happier, their economies are better, and that, that as the countries that have moved even marginally towards a relationship model have shown to be much better for it, much stronger economically and more well, resilient. The, the evidence is there, and it's there in all of my books, in all of my articles. It's there in the resources on the website of the Center for Partnership Studies, uh, partnershipway.org. It's there in our Caring Economy website, uh, caringeconomy.org. Our job, though, is to get that out 
because that's how change happens. I mean, think about the European Middle Ages, because I, I sometimes joke about it. I say, when I get depressed, I think of the European Middle Ages, okay? <laughs> because uh, not that we haven't had regressions, because, you know, as you said, uh, the movement has not been a straight line movement from domination to partnership in the last 300 years in the West. It's been a, an upward spiral with dips. I was born into one of those dips. I was born in Vienna, in Europe, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, at a time of the rise to power of the Nazis, first in Germany and then in my native Austria. Uh, so, uh, I mean, I'm, I, I'm very realistic about history. This is not Never Never Land. This is really uh, a way of really understanding what are the interventions that have been missing. Now, I'd like you to talk a little bit about some of the practical things you're doing. Uh, you talked about the Middle Ages. One of the things that made a difference in the Middle Ages was the printing press. Uh, and here in the 21st century, our version of the printing press is the Internet. And you mentioned a couple of your websites. So I'd like you to talk a, a little bit about some of the ways that people who want to find out more about your ideas or more about what's how you can move from theory to fact. Uh, you, you have some ways for us to do that. So tell us uh, about some of your webinars and some of the uh, things that we can, the courses that you're setting out that can, you know, help us move from reading the book to doing something in our lives. And that's so essential. And really my work is uh, research that is designed uh, with a purpose. I mean, I make no bones about it. My purpose, well, having been born into such a massive regression to the domination side of the continuum, I experienced violence. I observed violence. We've escaped by a hair's breadth. So this is research designed to help us accelerate this shift and avoid these regressions. Because if you look, for example, at the regression in Nazi Germany, uh, it was very much part of a return to, quote, a traditional family and a traditional a status for women. You know, there had been a little movement away from it during the Weimar Republic, and then Hitler came and whoosh, back, just like Khomeini, all the regressions, including the so-called rightist fundamentalist alliance. And also, too, I mean, one of the big uh, supporters of Nazi, one of the things that brought the Nazis to power was a terrible economy. Yes, uh, but not all terrible economies lead to uh, a regression to the domination system. Mm -hmm. And one of the factors that has been studied by some scholars mm -hmm. is that the normative ideal, uh, except for you know the, the movement away from it a little bit during the Weimar Republic, was that traditional family where the parents' uh, word was law, which is a way of socializing kids to fit into authoritarian systems and where women were definitely subordinate mm -hmm. to men in the home. Let's not forget that, and that's true of fundamentalists, too. Oh, I sure. mean, it, it's not a question of religion, because religion can be partnership-oriented, caring. But fundamentalism is really not religious. Uh, it is much more an issue of dominator fundamentalism. 
And that's what we need to understand. But you asked me about what can we do. Well, uh, at the Center for Partnership Studies, which is a uh, 501c3, it's a nonprofit organization dedicated uh, to accelerating this shift from domination to partnership systems worldwide. Uh, one of our programs is our Caring Economy Campaign. And we have fabulous uh, online webinars, leadership and learning programs uh, that you can find out about at caringeconomy.org. I also teach in those. I also teach uh, a, a four-part um, a series. Actually, it's six because we have conversation uh, where we have four videos on cultural transformation where are we, where did we come from, uh, and so on. And of course, where are we going and what can we do about it? And again, you can find out about that either at caringeconomy.org or at partnershipway.org. And as you know, I do a lot of uh, speaking. I uh, last year spoke at the State Department in Washington, DC. I've spoken at the United Nations General Assembly. Uh, my job really is to spread these ideas uh, because I get so much mail from people and people after they hear me speak so often come up to me and say that my work has changed their lives. And that's because it offers a different frame. That's what we have to remember. It's not right versus left. You can have terribly violent and regressive regimes on both sides. It's not religious versus secular. You can have terrible regimes there, etc. It's within all of these systems, and we have to become really aware of this configuration of a partnership system and a domination system. I'd like you to talk a little bit about working within the current political system we have here in the United States. As well, working might be the wrong <laughs> term to describe it at this point, but it's not working. <laughs> uh, uh, how can people who are living in the United States and want to move towards that more of the partnership culture help move the their culture, the people around them and the culture around them towards that more sustainable goal? Well, our Caring Economy program, uh, this online webinars that we have now, uh, participants now include uh, people from 33 U.S. states as well as 17 nations uh, globally, Africa, Australia, Latin America, etc., are designed just for that. Uh, you know, movements, social movements, require much more than a tweet. Uh, they require some understanding of what are the underlying dynamics that have to be addressed so that there can be lasting change. So these programs equip uh, women and men uh, to take this information into their communities. For example, a group in Nairobi, in Kenya, uh, used what they learned in the Caring Economy uh, webinars uh, to introduce these materials into a university there. And you know, there's a hunger for new ideas. There's a hunger, uh, there's really, I think, an understanding of what Einstein said, 
that we cannot solve problems with the same thinking that created them. And that is what this offers. And it's not going to happen overnight, but uh, the caring economy uh, leadership and learning programs are really uh, designed so that there's a multiplier effect. Because when one of our alumni uh, presents in her or his community, uh, other people become interested. And they either also join the program or they apply it. They begin to change. To change the conversation, you have to change the economic measurements. That's where we come to those social wealth economic indicators to, as I said, measure what are the drivers in a society that make it possible for every individual to uh, really realize her or his capacities. You have to change policies. You have to change practices, businesses. I mean, the Real Wealth of Nations and the Caring Economy campaign webinars have so much evidence showing that companies that care for their people uh, well, there are studies, for example, showing that the companies that regularly appear on either the working mothers or the Fortune 500 best companies to work for, companies that care for people and their families, they have a substantially higher return to their investors. Makes sense, doesn't it? When people feel cared for, they work very hard to make that business successful, don't they? So there's a lot of practical information. but. You know, I was talking about the European Middle Ages. The normative ideals there were fealty, obedience, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And then we started to change. Uh, and the normative ideals became freedom, equality, right? Yeah. Well, it's the same thing here. We have to get away from this old socialism versus capitalism debate, uh, preserve the partnership elements of both because there are some. We do need markets, we do need government planning, but move beyond them to an economic system that recognizes something that once articulated is obvious, which is that the real wealth of a nation, of the world, is not financial. Think of how the stock market keeps going up and down and sideways, you know, millions of dollars are lost or won on paper, you know, but that it consists of the contributions of people and of nature, so we need what we have not had, a caring economics in which economic measurements, economic policies, economic practices give visibility and real value to the most essential human work, the work of caring for people, starting in early childhood, and caring for nature. And this is really the message that we have to get out there. We have to show that it's realistic, that it's essential, and that it can be done, and that it works. Brianne, you long ago recognized the import of the difference between the wealthy and those in poverty. And my analysis of it goes way beyond the conventional analysis, as you know. It points to something that we have actually have empirical evidence of from all over the world, which is that one of the underlying reasons that poverty has proven so intractable 
is that we have not paid attention to the fact that the mass of the world's poor and the poorest of the poor are women and children. Now, there's a reason for that, and it comes right back to the fact that we give no visibility or value to the work of caring and caregiving that women worldwide still primarily do uh, in homes. So even in the wealthy United States, according to U.S. Census Bureau figures, women over the age of 65 are twice as likely to be poor as men of the same age. And that is largely not only because of wage discrimination or women live a little bit longer than men. It is because most of these women are or were either full or part-time caregivers in their homes. And uh, in Nordic nations, there is paid parental leave. We don't have that for both mothers and fathers, by the way, more partnership-oriented nations, value care work. There are stipends to help families care for children. In Norway, you can get social security credit for the first seven years of caring for a child at home. Uh, there are many practical proposals in the Real Wealth of Nations, in the Center for Partnership Studies, Caring Economy webinars, like caregiver tax credits. You know, we have child, child tax credits, but the caregiver is invisible, just as this information is still invisible. So it is our job to really dig deeper and to really look at some of the major causes of the intractability of poverty. And it yes, racism in the United States is certainly a big issue. But remember that this equation of difference, you know, between, uh, you know, one kind of person and another person starts uh, in households where uh, males are considered more valuable than females you know, whether it's in the United States or India, right? Well, one of the things you mentioned, too, which makes such sense, and you make it so clear in the book when we read it and experience it as a reading experience, is when you say that we pay more for a plumber who fixes our pipes than we do for somebody who takes care of our children. And it doesn't have to be that way. For example, I recently gave a keynote at an Academy of Management um, a conference um, and in Montreal. And I found out that uh, in Montreal, you can get high-quality child care for $7 a day from a unionized, highly trained, well-paid uh, child care worker. But it is because the government subsidizes it as an investment in their future human capital. Because we know, we know from neuroscience that, yes, those first years, the kind of care, parenting education is so important too. It's something that I'm working on also. And we have a wonderful uh, caring and connected parenting guide that you can get uh, from caring. No, you can get it at the uh, partnershipway.org site. But 
education, early education, early. And that means giving visibility and value to this so-called women's work, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think we've got to figure out, understand the economic impact of the people who stay at home and take care of us, whether they're taking care of us as adults when we're older or taking care of us as children when we're younger. Both, both. And you know, there was a recent, I mean, we have the data. That's, that's what's so interesting and also frustrating because the data needs to be better known and it needs to be really absolutely part of what policymakers look at. For example, there was a recent Australian study uh, showing that if this unpaid work of caring and caregiving, which, as I said, is primarily performed by women still worldwide, were to be part of the Australian reported GDP, it would constitute 50%. Now, uh, some studies show only 30%, which is already a lot, mind you. But the reason that they had a higher figure is because they didn't just use replacement value, because in the market, it's very poorly paid because of this hidden system of gendered values we have been talking about. They also used opportunity cost value. In other words, they averaged what could this woman or man increasingly, I mean, thank goodness, more men, as the status of women rises, men start to do more, quote, feminine things, right? Because it's not such a threat to them and to their identity as, as men. But uh, they counted what would be the lost uh, income if they had taken a job and averaged replacement value with uh, cost opportunity value. So there's a lot to be done. We're doing a lot of this at the Center for Partnership Studies Caring Economy Campaign. And I invite our listeners to really check us out. I'll go to caringeconomy.org. I've been speaking with Rianne Eisler. She's the author of The Chalice and the Blade, Our History, Our Future, and The Real Wealth of Nations, Creating a Caring Economics. Thank you for joining me, Rianne. It's a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.